Okay. Hi. This is Better Red Than Dead. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are going to be talking about The Scarlet Letter, which is Nathaniel Hawthorne's 1850 novel about a woman in Puritan Salem in the 1640s who has a baby under mysterious circumstances and has to wear the Scarlet Letter A for the rest of her life. And today Katie is going to be doing our synopsis and giving us some information about the romance. So, um, Tristan, why did we want to read the Scarlet Letter? Yeah, um, well, I'm, I've always loved Hawthorne, um, and I'm actually not sure that I've ever read the Scarlet Letter before. Um, I, mean, I mean, I legitimately don't know. Uh, the story is just so famous; it's hard for me to tell whether I know it just, you know, from the cultural atmosphere or whatever. Um, but I definitely remember vividly uh, reading House of the Seven Gables in high school um, and just loving it, um, and, and including all the spooky goth shit, which isn't really my jam normally. But I, I, I thought it was great, and I still think it's great. Um, and you know, speaking as a Marxist, uh, I, I, I'm really interested in writers who are thinking in, in rich and interesting ways about the relationship between the individual and uh, history or the historical moment, um, which Hawthorne definitely is doing in pretty much all of his fiction, um, including very much in The Scarlet Letter. Um, you know, uh, in, in this novel, why uh, why doesn't Hester just leave Massachusetts? Um, you know, what does her decision to stay say about an understanding of sociality? Um, you know, why should we care to think about the Puritans two or three or 350 years after the fact? Um, and, and what do we do with legacies of historical oppression and historical violence and how those legacies sit with us and shape our present moment? Um, and I think all of that is is really here in a big way in, in The Scarlet Letter. Yeah. So I wanted to read it because it's one of three books that I read in high school and in college and in grad school. And it was so different every time I read it. So the first time it was just hard to get through because I didn't know how to read mid 19th century prose when I was 16 or whatever. Um, but I remember feeling really frustrated with the treatment of the character, which I think is a fine thing to feel like that's not wrong. Um, and then in college, I remember digging how creepy this book, like it's a very, very creepy book. Um, and then in grad school, I remember really engaging with, but not actually getting anywhere with the question of how this book fits into the story of the emerging U.S. as a proto-nation or as an early set of colonies. Um, I also tried to think about unsuccessfully like what the book might help us see about the 1840s, which is when it was written, and the 1640s, which is when it takes place. So this time, I sort of wanted to reread it out of this like stubborn desire to work through what is now like 20 years of frustration with this book. Um, <laughs> Cause I feel like I haven't figured out fucking anything, but every time I try to read it, there's just much more to be wrestled with. Um, also, I'm like a lot better at 19th century prose than I was. So it doesn't actively make me feel like a moron, which is really nice. <laughs> Very cool. I like it. So I wanted to, to read this because I'm super, super into Puritans. I fucking love them. I think they're so cool. I, yeah, I, this may be a minority opinion here. Um, <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. I did my college, my senior thesis on this 18th century Puritan minister named David Brainerd, and I got hooked on it because basically he wrote a 300 page journal about his like, 
travels through, um, you know, the Northeast United States being a minister. And a quarter of it was all about how much he loves Jesus. And then like three quarters of it was about him having diarrhea. So no matter how much diarrhea he got, he still wouldn't stop like traveling around and telling everybody about Jesus. And then the end is that he dies from diarrhea. <laughs> and I I just I admire I admire that level of commitment. I admire um that drive to to keep going in spite of your your the doo-doo in your pants. You know, I just <laughs> I'm into it. I like it. It's cool. The, the other thing I li- I really like Hawthorne um and he has uh, a lot of interesting personal connections to this novel. So uh his way back in the day great great grandfather was a judge at the salem witch trials which are a cool episode of america oh, yeah. they're, they're very sad they're also very sad it's not cool in a cool way we shouldn't do it don't do it <laughs> don't pile rocks on <laughs> people sexist, do it. sexist mass hysteria is bad it's and i want to go on the record i'm gonna say <laughs> yeah. that directly the official position <laughs> yes yes i'm comfortable with that i want to i'm get behind that but the interesting thing about the witch trials is, so this is like 1690, 1692, this happened. And the funny thing about it is like this shit was not going down in Europe at the time. <laughs> and so it was this moment of America being super, super, super embarrassing. Like the king at the time wrote this letter to the colonies that was basically like, cut it the fuck out. You are being weird and embarrassing oh, yeah. it's like the letter you would write if your son was like i'm a scientologist now and i'm doing scientology <laughs> yeah. things the, the the like fun little trivia fact about this is though that uh hawthorne's last name was actually hathorne with no w but he wanted to distance himself from his witch trialy uh great grandfather so he like stuck a w into his last name which stands for like, who even is that guy? I don't <laughs> fucking know him. <laughs> and so I like to think about this novel as Hawthorne jerking off his shame dick. And I <laughs> sort of, I like that about it too. Yeah. I love that about Hawthorne though too, right? Like yes. that, that he like, I mean, it, it's just because it's so like relatively rare in the mid 19th century to find a writer, one who's just like as, as good as he is, but marries that to like this understanding of like, yeah, like the foundation of the United States and like European colonization of America is all like an original sin, like that. The, and mm-hmm. we're all like, we're all like coded in that. Um, and, and that he, yeah, I mean like, yeah, he is definitely, as you uh, put it very, very succinctly, uh, jerking off his, his guilt dick but like oh, yeah. but i but i mean like pe- you, like more people should have been doing that at that time you know rather totally. than manifest destiny bullshit yeah we i mean, do it now we should all do it now <laughs> right absolutely but like you're you're absolutely right even in that moment it's seems kind of rare that people would feel that way especially because in you know in the north in the u.s at that moment people are feeling pretty self-satisfied about their capacity to do democracy yeah, totally. Totally. Okay, so here's some things we might talk about. We are definitely going to talk about – are we going to – I think we might talk about both the preface and the intro that's called The Custom House, which is 700 pages long. <laughs> it's it's long. It's long. And then we're going to talk it. about the sort of historical problems that this book raises. We're going to talk about genre, by which I mean something like the historical novel but also the romance. Uh, we're going to talk about um, Pearl, the little kid who's uh, uh, 
crazy. And um, we're going to talk about the book's sort of symbolic order. So Katie, will you give us the background on this? Yeah. So the background that uh, I think is important here is that this novel is all about Puritans. And so to understand a lot of what's going on in the novel, it's important to understand something about Puritans. Hawthorne obviously comes later. He's not of this moment and of this sort of faith, but he is deeply influenced by it. And so that's what's important to know. And so the Puritans were these religious reformers who were basically like, fuck off, Church of England. You are all too Catholic and we are packing up our belt buckle hats and our resting bitch faces and we are going to New England. (laughs) They thought they were like too easygoing, right? Yes. They thought everyone else was far too chill and uh, that it wasn't good. And so they were they were not Catholic. It's very important. They would they would really want you to know they're not Catholic. They are Calvinists. And so this is like a sort of complicated theology, and there's a fun little mnemonic to remember it by, which is tulip. And the first one is arguably the most fun. The T stands for total depravity. <laughs> <laughs> That's that is that sounds like way more fun than everything I've ever heard about Puritans total depravity it's so much less fun though when you when you actually get into it it's all about original sin and so it's like it's sin there's sin everywhere sin from the window to the wall you can fill in the rest um (laughs) that's the that's the whole thing the u stands for unconditional election and what that means is that god's will is arbitrary and unknowable and you basically don't get to decide anything about it. It's like being one of the elect or the saved is like if Ariana Grande decides to retweet you and as opposed to simply faving you. And so, um, you know, we don't purely know arbitrary. why. Purely arbitrary. Purely <laughs> arbitrary. Purely arbitrary. And it's this thing that we don't know and it's not for us to know. So that's that's the that's the you. So did John Calvin personally make up this insanity? Like yeah yeah okay (laughs) i'm just wondering like i i uh i just want to know if it was like one guy with a stick up his butt who was like you can't do anything you're probably fucked not everyone is going to heaven it's never one guy i mean there's always enough sticks to go around for the butts (laughs) that's true yeah yeah, yeah. it's rarely one 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 stick of the butt guy but like this is his thing you know this is his 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 thing this is his jam okay um and people remixed it obviously right. <laughs> <laughs> right but that's that um he didn't come up with the tulip that was a fun little thing that was invented much later uh the l stands for limited atonement which means that jesus did not die for everyone's sins and so basically if we think of heaven like a pizza party St. Peter has only ordered two pizzas. And so only some of you fuckers can come to the pizza party. (laughs) And if your cousin brings beer, then sure, he can come this one time. But that's it. No plus (laughs) no plus twos. We don't have enough pizza for everyone. And pizza is eternal salvation. (laughs) Got it. Yep. Got got it. it. Yep. The I stands for irresistible grace. So what that means is you um if we're at a if we're at a banquet, say, and grace is going around, uh, is being passed around, you can't say like, no, thank you. I'm full on mashed potatoes. You have to take the grace and you have to you have to be saved with it. <laughs> and then mercifully, we're at the last letter, which is P. 
perseverance of the saints. And that means you can't get out of being saved. So salvation is like the mafia. We're selling flat tummy tea. Once you start doing it, once you're in, you can't get out. Okay. (laughs) And that's that. And so given all this, Puritans are obviously quite antsy about who's getting into heaven. So they're like looking for all these signs, which they understand to be God communicating with them to figure out like where they are in the tulip. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's a lot of this sign stuff going on into our letter. It it's what's key here is that it applies to both individuals and the society. So they're trying to figure out if society is holy too. And so for instance, if a bird takes a big old dump on the governor and in the dump, you can discern the contours of say the cross that is probably a really good sign. But if it looks like if the bird takes a shit on the governor's big old hat and it looks like a dick and balls, that's probably bad. That's probably in trouble. See, you know, like if this were the Romans doing augury, they would see the dick and balls and the bird shouldn't be like, yeah, th- this this is awesome. This is like, what, you're saying, this like, what we're here for. You're going to take – you're taking gall. Like we can tell you yeah. right now. So – but Hawthorne is – uh, his position and relationship to this stuff is like, it's not quite enough to say it's critical, right? So he's like, is it right to say he's making fun of it or is he's never that joshing? He's not making, I don't think he's making fun of it. I, I think he sees himself as, I mean, and what I, I'd be interested to hear what both of you think, but I think he sees it as deeply important culturally to him. Mm. Yeah. Well, and, and I will say that, like, while while he does, you know, I mean, he's not like some 17th century uh, crazy Puritan. Um, there's a way in which, like, some of the logic of, like, original sin and total depravity, I do think colors his, like, political understanding of the world. Like, not in, like, an uber theological Christian sense, but I mean, what, what we were talking about when you kind of uh, gave uh, a, a little bit of a synopsis earlier, Katie, about how, like, he is so, like, yeah, like, my family did this horrible shit, and I'm like, I don't know how to distance my myself from that that like there there is a way in which like some version of that like puritan outlook i do think maps onto his understanding of like history and relationality um even if even if the theology he doesn't really give a shit about or or um, as you said it's like it's like a culturally interesting but not like uh true or super important kind of thing for him and it seems like having just read it that there's a way that he just he doesn't look at it in isolation and i think that the Puritans seem to me at least only to look at it either in isolation or in relationship to like, well, we're not Catholic. Right. 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 So they have a singular theology that can't be changed. And for him, it's like not, he doesn't, he doesn't have that same relationship to it. Right. He, because he shows all these other sort of cultures in this book where we see the sea seafarers and the native people. Right. So it's not like this is the only thing that exists in the Americas. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh. Yeah. That. That's right. It's, it's like that. Like this. This is one like sort of culture within like a sort of globe. Well, I mean, continental certainly, but also like a, a global culture where there is a lot of difference. Um, but a but a really really dominant one of the early colonies and the early the nation. Right. Yeah. 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 That sounds right. Okay. So tell us what happens in the book. I would love to tell you what happens in the book. You think there's going to be fucking in it, but I hate to tell you. <laughs> oh, not there is fucking. no fucking at all. And I, um, yeah, the movie, the most recent movie does not agree that there's no fucking in this book. <laughs> no, it doesn't. 
I remember oh I watched that in high school English class and my um my teacher uh went up to the screen when it was on and covered the boobs. <laughs> are, wait, are you are you is is this the Debbie Moore Gary Oldman when Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. It like that I actually tried to watch that last night. I got 20 minutes in and it was super cuz like cuz I read the Wikipedia synopsis and it was like, "Oh, like Kevin Williamson of the National Review thinks this is the worst movie ever." Like, well, actually this movie sounds like it's probably right, awesome. Right now I have fuck to that see guy. It, yeah. But unfortunately, it's one of those broken clock situations that is <laughs> terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and and not in the way that the the movie Dracula, the newer movie of Dracula is like actually kind of awesome even though it's it's not it's successful in its uh, uh, excavation of that novel. Yeah, the Scarlet Letter sucks. I mean, the book is wonderful, but yeah, yeah, the, the, the movie. Yeah. So we came for the boobs. We didn't get and the boobs. We think we got. There's no. I want to make it very clear. There's no boobs in here. Um, but there is. Uh, you know, as we're saying, it's 17th century Massachusetts. We're having a real good time, folks. We meet Hester Prynne. And she has a baby. <gasps> <laughs> and this baby's name is Pearl. And she's not going to tell anyone who the dad is, so don't ask. And everybody in town is like, what the fuck? <laughs> so you have to go to jail and wear this letter A, which stands for adultery. And also we're going to be just huge dicks to you all the time. <laughs> And so this sucks for her and it's happening. And then even more sucky, her husband shows up and he is also like, what the fuck? And <laughs> he's this guy, Chillingworth, which you can tell by the name how he's going to be. He's old. <laughs> he's old as hell. He's very gross. He's he's Dutch for some reason. Right. Um, he's a doctor. He's quite sinister. That's his main characteristic. He's quite sinister. And he is pissed at, he's for sure pissed at Hester, but he's also like slightly woke about this whole thing. And so he's like, well, the kid's dad should also be punished if you're going to like wear the Scarlet Letter A. So his plan is basically to go around town and like smell everyone's dick like Sherlock <laughs> does and just figure it out. That's what he's going to do. But they can't so, tell anybody that he's her husband. So it's like this, the town doesn't know that they used to be married. She can't tell anybody because... He swears her to secrecy and there's some – I can't remember why. He just says, like, don't fucking tell. And he's a big enough creep that, like, you just won't. Right. Because he'll, like – he's the kind of guy who just, like, light your car on fire, you know? (laughs) He's the opposite of uh, Van Helsing. Yes. Yes. He's the kind of guy who, like, totally would send, like, his ex-selfies of him licking a knife. (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah, Oh, yeah. yeah. He basically does that in the book. Like, that's almost his vibe. Yeah. That is Sisties. Yeah. He's he's looking a knife guy. So so we've got this kid, we've got this husband, we have the cucked husband. And uh the dad of the kid though is Reverend Arthur Dimsdale. <laughs> Dimsdale, I actually secretly I love Dimsdale. He is like a ver- like this mushmouthed human greyhound type figure. Uh. Yeah, and he is super, super professionally successful as a preacher, but he is the kind of guy who just, like, he would fall to pieces if he were trying to use the self-checkout machine at Target and it didn't work perfectly. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. In in today's world, he 
he lacks the moral courage to make a telephone call <laughs> and it would, he, there's no way he's ever ordered his own drink at the bar. He always makes his friends go up and do yeah, it for him. Yeah. And he not only won't confess to being the dad of the kid, but he basically says to Hester, like, I feel really bad about this. And this is all your fault because you just won't like tattle on me. Right. Like, just, <laughs> yeah, like, come yeah. on, like, just, just tell. And so he is like feeling bad, but not confessing. He gets guiltier and guiltier and uh, he's lost his appetite for whatever colonial food. And so he's getting, <laughs> he's getting hella skinny. And as he is getting, he's becoming more and more of an upset bitch. His sermons are getting better and better. Right. So everyone is like, <laughs> we love it. He is the CEO of moping around listlessly. <laughs> he's leaning in. He's, he's, his career is taking off. It's soaring. And but unfortunately for him, uh, Chillingworth has sort of like figured out in the interim that he is the dad and he starts like really psychologically torturing him because even though Chillingworth has the Insta password and he has screenshotted the DMs, (laughs) he wants Dimsdale to be a man and admit it. And so we're getting to like we're getting to the climax. LOL, not really. Uh, The rising action here. And Hester and Dimsdale go into the woods with Pearl and they're like, hey, remember that time we fucked here? Uh, Maybe we should like run away together or something. But they don't. Dimsdale, though, at the end of the story, he nuts up and he gets on the town scaffold and he's like, the clue game is over. It's the end. It was me, Arthur Dimsdale, with my dong in the forest. And then he promptly dies of truth. The end. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I can't believe you love him. Well, and I also too like. I mean, her. You know, uh, aside from Hester's inexplicable attraction to this, just like human, like sock noodle. Yeah, noodle. There you go. <laughs> uh, I mean, she's pretty badass because, like, and it, like the ending of the book it gets a little bit less satisfying for me because it's like, oh, her great love for for this guy is what is what prevented her for. But for most of the book, like her rationale for not telling is like, fuck you. Yeah. Like I'm not. Yeah. You're not. You're not going to make me rat someone out. And also, like, I'll wear your goddamn letter. And you know, yeah, go fuck yourself, which is awesome. Like for like 85 percent of the book, like Hester is a total badass. That's amazing. true. Well, and she has the marker of a badass in 19th century novels, which is that she's tall. Yeah, right. She's tall as hell. Yep. So her hair is shiny. We know. And her <laughs> hair is very shiny. Um, she's no uh, she's no mill on the floss. There's no mill on the floss activity here. Uh, so we have to talk about the sort of – there's two introductions essentially, right? There's the preface, uh, which I I love. Because he's so bitchy, and the the um, custom house, custom house, the custom. I could talk about the custom house sketch for three fucking hours. Where he's yeah, also just like, I can't believe you ate. You talk about this goose that you ate nine hundred years yeah. ago. And I can't. Okay, yeah. so, uh, so what's the preface, Tristan? I think you have the strongest feelings about this. I I I loved the hell out of this introduction. Um, yeah, like so. First of all, the preface that we get, I think, which up here with the second edition, is like. So these, these and it's poor, like a page, just yeah. It, 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 yeah, it's just a page. Um, but these poor customs house schmucks who Hawthorne just mercilessly drags for like <laughs> eighty thousand yeah. words before he gets to it are like their family were like, "Why are you so mean to Uncle Frank? What did he ever do to you?" 
And and Hawthorne writes this preface that's just totally like LMFAO. Like he's like, <laughs> like no, he's like, hmm, yeah, I guess if any of that weren't true, I would retract it, but I'm not going to. So like, you know, so that you know, you, you should thank me for owning your uh, your beloved relative so hard. But yeah, like I mean, the, the whole the whole preface is just like so. Okay, so like it was at like kind of a low point in his literary career. Kid, you know, I'm sure his his professional biography a lot better than I do. But uh, I think it's President Polk. Uh, gives him this sort of like sinecure where he, he's like the the head of the customs house in Salem, Massachusetts. And like, yeah, the whole point of it. Well, so by the end of the preface, it's like, oh, and since I had all this free time there, I discovered this narrative that was written about this. Thing. And so like the the, the, pre- the pretense is that the Scarlet Letter is like this foul narrative. Um, but most of it is just like, yeah, like everyone I worked with was super dumb. Like there was this one guy, he just sucked real bad. He wouldn't stop talking about food all the goddamn time. And oh my God, I got so dumb there. Like literally I could feel my brain melting. I couldn't write anymore. It was like getting fired from that place was literally the best thing that ever happened to me. And fuck these people. And these people are just schmucks. They're just like, they're, they're not like politically, they're just like former coworkers who annoyed him. And like, he writes this amazing introduction all about that. And he does this great, like fainting couch moment where he says, this is short. He says, uh he's saying people are mad at me and so when he says him he's referring to himself he says the author uh it appears to him that the only remarkable features of the sketch meaning the book are its frank and genuine good humor and the general accuracy (laughs) with which he is convinced his sincere impressions of the characters therein described as to enmity or ill feeling of any kind personal or political he utterly disclaims such motives like yeah um you guys i can't believe you thought this was mean yeah um, no, I, sorry i'm just being honest yeah exactly. yeah, yeah. Like, I, i'm sorry but facts don't care about your feelings right like, <laughs> yeah oh god that's oh man i just compared hawthorne to ben shapiro i'm sorry i apologize yeah, to the late nathaniel hawthorne for that who like, is late, well he's very bitchy yeah he is totally bitchy it's so funny though it's so funny it's just so 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 funny like here's the thing i like all of us have had jobs that we've hated and co-workers who have annoyed us and like i'm sure we all have had like oh like i'm i'm gonna like burn bridges on my way out the door but like then most of us i you know either for you know like uh, a sense of decency or just like you know a pure kind of mercenary i i I don't actually want to burn bridges don't do it Right. Hawthorne just totally does it. Like, oh yeah, he like, just yeah. lights a match and tosses it behind him. He doesn't give a fuck about those people. He refers to one of them as this is the meanest thing that I've ever read about anyone. An absolute non-entity. Yes. <laughs> yes. That is the shit that you say about your friend's boyfriend when you think they're still broken up and you don't know they've gotten back together. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. she never speaks to you again. Yep, an absolute non-entity. Yeah, it yeah. is so funny. All of his coworkers, I, I think, I don't know if we were talking about this before, but this whole thing is just like, the Custom House sketch is is like The Office. It's like Dunder yes. yeah. Mifflin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, colonial times. My, my, actually, my, uh, when I was, when I was uh, explaining, uh, they, uh, my wife hasn't read uh, this girl, or she, I think she read this girl letter a long time ago. But I was like refreshing her memory about this introduction, and she's like, "Oh yeah, that's it, that's the office." I'm like, yeah, that no, that's yeah. what, yeah, that's <laughs> we, totally. we all sort of came to that conclusion. Yeah, no, there's this, there are all these great lights just like that. It's like uh, that, uh, uh, yeah, I like, but as, but this is a direct quote. But as respects the majority of my core of veterans, there will be no wrong done if I characterize them generally as a 
out of wearisome old souls who had gathered nothing worth preservation from their varied experience of life. they're worthless but what he doesn't get to that until he's like he's like ta- he's like giving us like the scene so he's walking around like taking us on this tour of all these guys who are like old as fuck barred out on that lean robo tripping in the rocking chairs like they yeah. are asleep like they're just like they're just like dead to the world they all smell like soup they have every <laughs> form of disease their brains are made of macaroni and cheese like they are just nothing 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 is happening so and he good. does everything that you're not supposed to do with a former job right so there's this moment where he's like after the three and a half hours of work i actually had to do in a day <laughs> three and a half hours i was like oh. my brain yeah. turned to fucking mush and yeah. every time i left the office i still felt like a fucking idiot <laughs> yeah, and it's just like you're not supposed to say i'm barely doing any work <laughs> Oh man! <laughs> just like, can you imagine going to a new, like, going to the next job interview <laughs> and being like, "Ah, uh, yeah, well, my previous job uh, didn't work out because everyone that I worked with was dead, and they were all uh, enormous, dense, heavy sacks of shit that smelled like sulfur, and um, yeah, wouldn't stop talking about the fucking goose they ate." So, yeah, yeah, that's, and I barely yeah. worked. Yeah, the, yeah, right. The the what I think it it is the it is the uh, the guy who loves to talk about food that pisses him off the most, right? It's like this one guy <laughs> who's like he's real dumb, but like man, did he like to eat? And, and like, what does he say that the worst tragedy in this guy's life was that he ate a tough goose like nine hundred years ago <laughs> or something? He goes into detail about this <laughs> yeah. fucking goose. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. Yep. So. But so, like, I actually do. I mean, it, it's hilarious um, for all the reasons uh, we said, including just the like Hawthorne's amazing bitchiness to these poor people. Um, but like, I so I I do think like I. I think the foul narrative stuff is kind of like a lame tack on like it that, Oh, he just got like, it's like this legal document that this British colonial officer in the 18th century had like worked on from this, from this even earlier thing um, that that's the conceit. Um, and fine. I mean, like I, I get it. That's actually a pretty, pretty common uh, trope in, in this period. Um, right. Katie, like that, that the, the, the foul narrative is like a, um, cause he says he, he finds the physical scarlet letter rolled up in this yes, right. document. And then right. he, uh, you know, as, as you would, I suppose he tries it on and he feels, <laughs> <laughs> he feels, this, he felt cute. He's so cute. Um, and then he feels the psychic shock of it. Right. So it's like, it burned him. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and then, you know, it, it, it worked. It, it's, it, it's just, it's like one of those, uh, uh, devices that is sort of so overworked. It's like, yeah, okay. I, it, to me, it's like one of the least interesting parts of this very interesting chapter. It also but just I, sounds like one of those like spooky stories to tell in the dark, right? Like yeah, I heard it, this thing was true. Yeah. Right. It, it is to, to the, to the extent that the Scarlet Letter like, uh, dwells in that sort of gothy romance like that. I think that is very much part of that. And it's cool. I mean, you know, know uh, he's a great writer and it, it works even if it is a little bit overworked um but i i do think that there is like a more important um and a kind of more serious uh way in which this this chapter does sort of tell us something about how he's thinking of the narrative um which is that it so there so there's this moment early on um in in the the, the customs house vignette where he's like so why did i come back to take this uh because i hate salem uh but uh, uh, you know, like my family's from there. Like, you know, we we have this horrible history in Salem. Um, but then he made, like he has this um, this this really to be striking claim. Um, 
And yet, though uh, invariably happiest elsewhere, there is within me a feeling for old Salem, which, in lack of a better phrase, I must be content to call affection. The sentiment is probably assignable to the deep and aged roots which my family has struck into the soil. It is now nearly two centuries and a quarter since the original Briton, the earliest emigrant of my name, made his appearance in the wild and forest-bordered settlement, which has since become a city. And here his descendants have been, have been born and died and have mingled their earthy substance with the soil until no small portion of it uh, must necessarily be akin to the mortal frame wherewith for a little while I walk the streets. In part, therefore, the attachment which I speak of is the mere sensuous sympathy of dust for dust. Few of my countrymen can know what it is, nor as frequent transplantation is perhaps better for the stock, need they consider it desirable to know. Um, so one, the, the dust for dust thing, it's like that that's like the biblical like ashes to ashes, dust for dust. It's kind of like dwelling in death, mm -hmm. which is like your rootedness to this place. But um, but I mean, like to, to the extent, like, you know, and we'll talk about this uh, later, I'm sure, like that Hester, it is suggested that to escape this sort of shame that's being forced on her, Hester could just leave Massachusetts. She has that ability, we're told, and she doesn't. Like there's something about the sociality or her, her connection to the place that just roots her. Um, I do think that like Hawthorne in some way, like, like that Hawthorne's thinking of his own kind of very ambivalent and fraught feelings with his family history and his relationship to this place that has this very kind of fucked up past. Um, and that, that like, like, you know, that, that, that is another kind of very important layer to the, the customs house material beyond just the, it's fucking a hilarious own of these poor schmucks. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know that he thinks I so I'm not sure how I'm interested in thinking more about like how ambivalent he is about Puritans actually because he sort of thinks that um you know Hester is like more Puritan than the Puritans and that's why he likes her I think. Yeah. Because it's about being badass and like figuring shit out for yourself basically. And sort yeah. of sticking to your like she does do something that I think he thinks is super principled. Yeah, like the yes, the not you know not telling on not telling on Dipsdale yeah. and sticking around. Right. Yeah, yeah. She 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 has a code. She has a code that she sticks to. Um, in a way that yeah, and there, that there's well there yeah there there are all these suggestions of hypocrisy uh, among the 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 elite uh, the, the 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 male elite of of Boston that like oh yeah you know they have the the. Uh, the uh, sartorial laws, right? That they're not, mm -hmm. you know, like Puritans aren't allowed to wear like fancy, mm -hmm. fancy cloth. But like, the, like the governor will like, he'll, you know, he'll he'll come right up to the edge, like you. So you can't have like color, but they'll do like this really elaborate like black like embroidery and stuff like that. Um, and there's there's all kinds of suggestions like. Uh, just, just like about a latent hypocrisy that like Hester for the most part, I mean, and like, it doesn't mean that she follows like the Puritan code to the T. I mean, clearly not, you know, she, uh, she, 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 yeah, she fucked who she wanted to fuck. Yeah. Um, but she does have like her own kind of moral sense that she is like deeply committed to in a way that I think none of the other characters really are. With the exception maybe of Chillingworth. Yeah. With the exception of Chillingworth. Right. But isn't that like, a little different for him it does it's hard for me to see that as ethical so much as just like a revenge cause like like obs obsessive yeah than, yeah yeah it's not like mentally healthy let's say right. um but he does but he does understand like it's it's not exactly self-interested what he does that sounds right so, to me yeah it doesn't seem okay interesting okay explain that i'm sorry now i'm yeah a little lost well, because, okay, so Chillingworth is the, you know, 
scorned husband or whatever. And so he's like, I want to be around here and figure out who is the who's the person who is the dad of this kid because it's actually not right for you to bear the shame alone while he hides himself away. And he does say at one point it could be any of these guys who are Mr. Fancy Pants high society people and that's that shouldn't stand. Right. So and there's a lot in this book. It's not just Chillingworth who sort of has this anxiety about people hiding away what they're really like. Hester talks about how she has the scarlet letter on her and it gives her this like preternatural ability to look at people and figure out what their yeah. secret shame yeah, 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 yeah. is. Right. Yeah. And so she looks at people and she sees like she gets like a pang when she looks at this like fancy minister dude and she thinks like, oh, could it be that perhaps like he likes to to fuck his chickens? And then like he looks <laughs> at this, this this lady and um, you know, like uh and it, she sees sort of like she gets this feeling of like maybe maybe this bitch is like doing something that's not quite so uh this like respected elder dame widow right like that's how i that's what i remember she has this moment of like oh maybe she's like me yeah yeah yep yeah that's totally that's really interesting so that's i mean right so that's like a being a better puritan yeah because it's like the whole the essence of being a puritan is you can never be sure okay who because they have this thing uh the visible saints and so these are the people who like you're pretty sure are getting into heaven and there's like a lot of like negotiation around who's one of them but the bottom line is you actually never know okay Mm -hmm. and so no matter what you do so like people for instance would like drown their kids because they were like i can't i can't take not knowing i'd rather just know that i'm fucked like so i'm gonna drown my kid and i'll know right so it's it's that level of like you can't be sure, right? Okay. Oh, the ma- the matter of the historical figures of this are like deeply confusing for me, and I think, you know, the way that he frames somebody like I, I don't remember her first name, but like Mistress Hibbins, who he keeps saying like yeah. she's yeah, a yeah, witch yeah. later, you guys, um, which maybe I'm over reading because I'm like she's cool and I like her. Yeah, no, um, yeah, me too. Cool. She is cool, right? Uh, so he does do these sort of like, um. He uh, historicizes this moment in really interesting ways because he's like, here's let me tell you what's really happening. And then let me tell you like what's going to happen. And it's uh, yeah, it's just a really interesting thing that, again, it's like my problem with this book is that I can't figure out what it's doing at any given moment. Yeah, um, you know that, and uh, that well, yeah. First, the 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 character or the the historical figure you mentioned, yeah, Anne Hibbins. I think uh, isn't this right? She was the sister-in-law of Richard Bellingham, who's actually the, was one of the governors Governor, in the yeah. 1640s of, of of Massachusetts Bay, and yeah, ha- hang for hang for witchcraft. For I'm sure some like completely stupid, like obvious, like she had like a cat that like lost its tail and walked <laughs> right, back right. and walked backwards in front of someone's chicken or, or like some shit like. <laughs> your cat made a face at me yeah it was Uh, also like at that point it was like because she wouldn't also say like sorry you know yeah 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 yeah. right so so and she and like in that to that extent she is like she is sort of like a model of hester like Hibbins and, and hester share a certain sort of like position 
to the rest of society. They're both kind of outcasts, uh, kind of by choice to a certain extent. But Hibben and Hibbins uh, just like runs with that to its ultimate extreme. It's like, yes, I am. I am. I am an outsider. I'm going to make myself as much of a threat to, to you people as I can. Whereas Hester, like deliberately chooses to remain within the fold of society, even while accepting um, and really embracing being demarcated as somewhat as outside of at the same time, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think also it makes sense to talk about Anne Hibbins as we talk about Pearl. Right. Because mm-hmm. like being a little yeah. witchy, witchy or like witchy like is seems to be what Hawthorne's thinking about, right? Not like, are you a witch or not? It doesn't seem like he thinks, for instance, that Hester uh, thinks that Anne Hibbins is doing witchcraft in the woods. Yeah, that's what I mean. Right. But she's got right. some witchy but, qualities. But she does think like maybe Pearl is a demon a lot of times. Yeah. She does think like because Pearl's a huge bitch and emotionally unstable. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Pearl's a, I love Pearl. She's Girl's great. Cool. I don't really want to be her mom, though, to be totally Oh, no, like, no, no. Because no, you're like, she... do this thing. And she's like, no, fuck you. Yeah, like, yeah, well, Pearl, right? Like, she, um, so, so she is the, she is, uh, like, yet another symbol of, of the sin. But then, then she, like, I don't know, like, well, so there is so, a hieroglyph, which is this thing that I'm now I'm yes. like really frozen on it, but go ahead. Sorry. No, that yeah, that which is yeah. I mean, we should talk about like what what that what that means. Like, why is using that term? Um, no, but like so, like in the woods, like when uh, like so the 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 scene that uh, you you talked about in the synopsis, Katie, where uh, where you know H- Esther and and Dimsdale are you know they're they're they fantasize about running off together and she throws she she takes the scarlet letter off her breast and throws it away like pearl grabs it's like no you wear that like yeah. I mean, she like she refuses to let her mother like step step outside of it but then there are other moments where like pearl is like kind of the deepest like f- uh kind of fuck you to the 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 uh the, the sort of the 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 boston like patriarchy um they're like yeah so like right so like there so there's this one chapter um it's called the the, the elf child and the minister uh it, it's chapter eight um and basically so what's happening is is that the um the 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 governor the the the, the elite sort of uh men of of the colony are are thinking that oh well we should take like so hester is like a marked woman uh you know she can't like she's like a corrupting influence on this child we should take the child and 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 so hester's at the governor's uh mansion arguing like no that you know a guy to, to to pleading to be able to keep the child um and and pearl's kind of playing outside the window um and and, and we get this bit um so now pearl knew well enough who made her um so it's so, okay right so the the governor I think it's the governor. It's one of the ministers asking, like, who, like who, who made thee? And and she and and uh, now now Pearlwell knew well enough who made her for Hester Prynne, the daughter of a pious home. Very soon uh, after her talk uh, with the child of her heavenly father, had begun to inform her of the truths which the human spirit, at whatever stage of immaturity, imbibes with such eager interest. Pearl, therefore, so large uh, were the attainments of her three years' lifetime, could have borne a fair examination in the New England Primer, where the first column of the Westminster Catechisms, although unacquainted with the outward form of either of their celebrated works. 
But that perversity, which all children have more or less of, and which Little Pearl had a tenfold portion, now at the most inopportune moment took thorough possession of her and closed her lips or impelled her to speak words amiss. After putting her finger in her mouth with many ungracious refusals to answer good Mr. Wilson's question, the child finally announced that she had not been made at all, but had been plucked by her mother off the bush of wild roses that grew by the prison door. Like... Just what the, you know, it's like, this is a really serious situation. It's like, kid, they're, they're going to like, try to take you away from your mom. And she's like, "Mm, no, fuck all you people, you know? And she does it like, I, I find it so interesting. I don't, the only three-year-old I hang out with is Tristan's three-year-old, but like, (laughs) um, she always, Pearl is always acting in, in a truly like deliberate way. Yeah. And three-year-olds do not consistently act in a way that's like, um, you know, she's like, I'm going to be a total asshole and be like, I was grown like a flower on, a-. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, but yeah, Pearl yeah, is yeah. very deliberate in all of her actions. Oh, totally. Yes. And I think totally. that's part of her like witchy pooness, right? Is like, how are you so intentional? Totally. Yes. Um, she's, she's not a normal kid. It's like she is to the level of she should be on a TLC show called like I hate my cunty daughter. <laughs> that much of like, yeah, like yeah. or like yeah or like on uh like Mori Povich or something like that. Totally. Right. Like, like, child is, yes. is willful yes. in a way I can't even understand. Yeah. But it kind of feels like she is she is in a sense I don't mean like plucked from nature, but she is like a wild baby you know she is a little bit oh, yeah. animally yes she's a she is a wild baby she's she is she is lit af um I, I, can i add another like stupid question which is that what is that like when this scene happens do we yet as readers know that dimsdale's the father because that's one thing as i was reading this this time it's like i mean i did like i get the 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 story is so famous that it's like yeah i know immediately who author dimsdale is but like the story doesn't immediately tell you that you kind of and but i i'm trying to put my i can't remember exactly well is, is it when he stands on the scaffold with them is that is that the moment that we learn so okay so the thing is like technically you should know much earlier than that but there are so when he so he stands on the scaffold there's a scene where dimsdale stands on the scaffold with um hester and pearl and chillingworth is looking at them he's standing looking at them and this is the night that the governor uh dies yeah and so so that is the um so that's when we know but but you know before that that he's the dad. I feel like I I don't mean I knew for sure, but I was kind of trying to track it and I think it happens earlier. I know it happens earlier that Chillingworth is taking care of him and he falls asleep and he like rips open his yes. vestments. And he, and he sees something which is not yes. is right. not explained. Um I I always thought that he's like carved the letter into his skin or something like yeah. that. Or like, that it's appeared yes. by some sort of like ghostly mechanism. Right. Yes. Sure, yeah. They they talk about that a little bit at the end too that people say they swear they saw it. Well, it's another one of those Hawthorne moments where where he's like well, I don't know, guys, because this might be hearsay. Because it turns out this is a true story. So it's like, is it? Here's what some witnesses yeah. said. You know, right. I think that scene uh, where he sees the uh, the marking on him is actually after he's been after he's seen them on the scaffold. Oh, okay. So those oh, okay. for me are the revelation revelatory moments. But is there a moment earlier when 
you're supposed to figure it out or is it just about supposed to sort of dawn on you? First of all, because there are not really any other men in this book. Right. <laughs> no. Well, if you're but if you're even slightly if you're even a somewhat savvy reader, when Hester is introduced as what she's like being paraded through the town uh, with the with a letter on her and she's standing on the scaffold and she's being put in jail. Like Dimsdale's relation to that should tell you that he's the dad. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What is and his relation like to it? Early. So like he is Mr. Like too damn Puritan, but there's something that's not quite right about him. Okay. So he's this like famous, he's like, he's nervous. They talk about how nervous he is. They talk about how his lips always tremble when he's not talking. Oh, right. So like he is just like super, super, super fucked up from like the beginning. Yeah. Like, e- e- yeah, even at that moment, is there like uh, when she's on the scaffold and when she first has been, uh, you know, the, the letter uh, sewn on her clothes. Right. That like they like that the older minister exhorts him to like, you have to convince this woman to say who the father's. And we right. get like, even though it's not specified, yep. we, he just seems like such a guilt a nervous guilt blob that it's like oh there's something wrong with this guy right like um and and just contextually i think like and we should get what it is is that he's the he's the dad yeah there's a moment i think where he's asking her uh who the dad is and yeah yeah it's clear that he's the fucking dad is it in that sort of like it's not the first i guess it is that first scene where she's sort of like being shame walked is that when he asked her who the dad is it's a right yeah um that yes and he says something like well you know i guess if she doesn't want to tell then uh what can you do (laughs) too bad i guess she just doesn't want to but he also says like well maybe he has it even worse than she maybe the dad has this fucking guy he needs to live with that guilt you know you know and he can't tell anybody yeah it's worse for him he sucks. This fucking guy. He's just a he, yeah. I'm tired of him. But uh, so what? Will you, Katie? Why is this a romance? Because it's like, isn't it a historical novel? And then Tristan's going to yell at me because he's going to say those are the same thing. And then you're going to talk <laughs> yeah. about Walter Scott, and then I'm going to cry. So go off, King. Just I. It's helpful to know what a romance means in the 18th century or 19 18th and 19th centuries. Oh, Tristan, do you want to like, do you want to do jazz on this? Or actually, I have notes. So you do, do you do, you, do you want to just, you know, pop off and say your, say your piece? Uh, I mean, here's do, the thing. I, to- I mean, I'm a bad 18th century is because I don't fucking care. I know people in my period. <laughs> like, I mean, and which like that does make me kind of a heretic as an 18th century is or super into the like, what's the, dis- and you know, okay. So the novel in 18th century terms, the novel is like kind of attempts to be a faithful, like portrait of like what would happen in a real person scare quotes that we can imagine in the world psychology, even if the situations they're in are, are kind of foreign or strange that like, we're getting this, like w- what we're seeing is like a working through the psychology of like of the human um whereas the romance is more like allegorical and shit like that and it's just i katie yeah you i'm sure you have a much better answer because i just i don't to me it's like long prose uh fiction (laughs) it's the i don't you know what i mean it's like but like i I mean i guess i care is like for the sense of like the sociality of literature and what authors thought the narrative technology could do um that i'm interested in but the kind of formal distinction i kind of i get a little bit eye rolly about like why we put so much pressure on that but maybe you can convince me that i'm being an idiot which i probably am I probably cannot convince you of that. I'm just only um, going to pause you for a second to say, like, speaking of romance, if you guys can hear in the background any snarfing 
or snorting, my dogs are wrestling. And so it might. I do hear snar. I hear snarfing. Okay. So there's some snarfling. It can't be helped. I'll try to get them not to bark at each other. The old snarfling. The old snarfle of my idiot dogs. Okay. So you can't convince Tristan not to give oh, a shit yeah. about this? So may so may so maybe I maybe I can maybe I can't may I don't mean that's you can you know make your own decision but the thing that's <laughs> the thing that is like sort of um important kind of about you know a stuff to know about the romance uh like Hawthorne's national romance basically is like yeah so Tristan it is like a lot of what you're saying um about the the psychology and character stuff is different. The, the romance is famously kind of thought of as like an and then narrative where like stuff happens and and then stuff happens and then stuff happens and so it's there's there's this different causality than there is in the modern novel right and so it's sort of like so what's going on here um with a romance at this time in american history is that there's not the same amount of stuff to look back on as there would be right. if we're oh, of course. talking about Europe. And wow. so what we're trying to figure out is like what is it that has brought together culturally, geographically, linguistically, like what brings together like Dutch people and Northeastern Puritans? Um, what is the great cultural homogenizer? Like what is that thing? And so I think for Hawthorne, it, it doesn't go into this, but for Hawthorne, I think it is the revolution. Hmm. But he also knows in 1850 that it's about to be something else. Like that he's aware about that something's about to happen with slavery. Like he knows this is a very interesting time to to write a a, a romance. Yeah. Because we're looking we're like looking back on this national past and it's also forming and we're figuring out what's gonna happen and all this stuff. And so right. I don't know if that that's certainly not gonna convince you to care about the romance, but uh, it's just like well, yeah. fun facts. No, I I do care about the romance. I care about the novel. I just like that. Pe- like people, like 18th century has uh, traditionally been very invested in those kind of formal distinctions, and and to me they're they're somewhat less interesting. Then the question, oh, yeah. the more interesting question, what an author thought they could do with a certain narrative technology. Um, but no, that actually is really helpful because one. One thing that always a little bit freaks me out about Hawthorne um, and also his good friend, uh, Her- Herman Melville, who who wrote Moby Dick. Uh, and uh, Yeah. And, 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 <laughs> Katie, you feel, Katie feels Love the him. same way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, we, we're, we're, we, we all we all stand uh, uh, Melville. Right. But, yes, we do. Um, yes, we do. But he, yeah, Melville wrote it, uh, uh, much less famously uh, these days in Moby Dick, uh, Pierre, which is this bonkers like incest narrative, <laughs> which posits this like, yeah, this antique, this American aristocracy in like, which is just yeah. totally like kind of fabricated um, and, and Hawthorne in the same way, like he's real as he's working through this period, which, yeah, it's 200 years in the past. Um in a lot of societies, 200 years is like a blink of the eye, but he's really like, oh, this is like in the distant past. This is like antiquity, mm-hmm. um, which I mean, like, I, you know, I, I, we, we were talking kind of before the show about how like that, that is a sort of like bullshit narr- in kind of like white racist American history, like to, to, to kind of justify like European claims to the land by positing this antiquity and also to like make the United States stand on some kind of like bullshit equal footing with like Europe itself. And like Hawthorne obviously knows that's bullshit. But so like, what is it that he's doing? Um, and thinking of it like that, that what he's doing is like kind of trying to create like a national romance um, that that does that does like sort of create a mythology of its own origin. Um, that is that like I that that kind 
kind of helps me to make some sense of what this these these kind of bonkers claims about like how how yeah just how ancient the puritan past is for him yeah and i think it also sort of maybe explains something that so we get a lot of like we get a lot of like sort of interiority but not really Right. Uh, so it's a lot of descriptions of what must be going on for somebody or like what probably is going on. And there's some inner life for um for Hester, but there's only so this interesting thing where there's only one moment where we actually know what Pearl is thinking. Like there's one hmm. moment where it was like Pearl thinks X. So it's only the one time. Yeah. And so and and like you don't and there's no sort of like settled history. It's just stuff that happens. And so right. you're it's so you're not really located anywhere. But this is – I mean, I do think it's sort of – it's not not a novel. Yeah. Well, I mean, so this is like a weird uh, – stop me if you guys find this s- silly. But like the, it's really taken up later in the 30s and 40s as like a a novel in an important way. Like this is – there's a Matthias in say in the Norton. And then people like uh, – like – John Crow Ransom and Lionel Trilling are really into this book. Like people in the mm. early 20th century who are making this like establishment of the American canon, this like American Renaissance idea are super into this book is like doing character. William James thinks this too, even though it's like, I'm just not totally convinced, but I don't, I, but people later take it to be a novel. Yeah, so these really famous literary scholars are basically all that's what they want to use it for. Exactly. Well, right. Like well, it is you can take that as sort of like instrumental, which I think is like, yeah, that's not empirical. Well, right. Well, and and like one thing you were saying about the the romance being very and the the and then genre. So like very kind of plot driven in the sense of a lot of like sort of like scenes that have like kind of allegorical significance and a lot of symbolism inherent in them. Um yeah, I mean we do see that there, but we also I mean like this is like an intensely psychological narrative mm-hmm. in a way that I don't think like romance coming from like some sort of like medieval chivalric tradition where it's all like it's it's kind of the same story over and over again we know intuitively what each of the characters is supposed to represent i i mean i don't i mean like it's it's a very symbol heavy book but i don't think characters work in quite that way they are like i mean this is like a human psychology in the world that we're seeing and, th- and that's like what a lot of the narrative tension is produced by yes and i think like so that's su- what you said is super super important because and it sort of explains why this is a novel or a a text let's say that's about guilt more than it's about shame Mm. and so like all of these efforts by uh you know all the rest of the puritans to sort of shame hester those are not what's important what's important is her guilt and her reflection and her feeling of like she is choosing to integrate herself uh into colonial society in this way that is also like makes her a pariah this is her this is her choice it's not um that she's being sort of made to feel this way by uh by what's going on around her she feels like this is the this is the right thing Mm. so it's she's like sort of using her social position to um enact her to to experience her guilt in a way that she feels is right. Right. And so, and for Dimsdale, because he won't accept um, public responsibility until the very end, and then he fucking dies like instantaneously. Right. It's all about his guilt. He's never, he's never really shamed, you know, sort of Chillingworth tries to in this, you know, slant wise way, but 
Right. And so this is like the this is wow, there's a sense to which it can't not be psychological because that because it's sort of like Puritan question is in just it's it's like inextricable from the book itself, right? So like this is at least how Katie you were introducing it. It's like you can't think of this book as not having it sort of it is Puritan interested or whatever. But it so of mm-hmm. course, like because of the way that Puritan curious. Puritan curious. <laughs> because of Tulip, which again I'm like I'm doing my best to remember what that means. But um it is about not maybe not about inner life, but about a person. Right. And that's why also so the so we have this scarlet letter that stands for adulterer. And then by the end of the book they say, like, well, I don't know, maybe it stands for Abel. Right. Right. right? Like, so she begins to make the symbol. Right. The symbol's mm-hmm. not not defining her anymore. She's right. remaking it. Yeah. And, it, and that's the important thing. And it's, again, this sort of, like, uh, that the that what comes to be the sort of dominant symbol is something, is like Pearl, which is what I find so crazy, right? Which is that late in the book, he ends up calling her the, the hieroglyph, the symbol. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, okay, so Katie, you have our our usual closing questions. I do. I have a lot of questions. I have a lot to learn, quite frankly, and so I'm excited to learn from you two. Um, okay, so we've talked about this scene where uh, Hester, Pearl, and Dimsdale are standing on the scaffold in the middle of the town. It's midnight, and they see this big, giant, big meteor sc- scorching across the sky. And they all think like, oh, I wonder if it means like angel or Abel or right. ass play. Ass <laughs> play. <laughs> you never yeah. know. I mean, you never know. And so I was, I was just hoping that you two could could imagine that you're there, just feel yourself present with them on that scaffold, and you see that meteor. Um, and I would like you to offer your interpretation of this celestial miracle. And as you do, I don't want you to feel any pressure, but you should just know that, um, you know, we decide right now whether you're getting into heaven and it's this, this answer is going to, going to play a big part. So oh, well, I'm, um, I'm, don't, don't stress. I'm not. So you never know are on that train. You never know. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Well, no, I mean the, 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 uh, yeah, that, that it, that it is, is some, it is something, uh, vaguely or overtly sexual. I, I think that that as I, that's probably, I mean, I still have the brain of a child. Uh, I thought the web, like middle age and fatherhood would change that. No, like, like, um, <laughs> this, this past, this past winter, there's a big snowstorm. And, uh, one of, uh, one of, uh, our, our good friends, uh, got a picture of like some undergraduate at the university had drawn in like 50 feet long, like a giant dick and balls in the snow. And I am still, I am still so jealous that I did not get that picture. <laughs> but, um, but no, like here, so here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking like, okay, so like church is super fucking boring. It's stupid. Everyone around you is wearing black and there's this fireball in the sky that is extremely cool. I'm just going to be like, you know what? Fuck this. I, the, I, I, my whole faith has been shattered. I now worship the fireball in the sky. This is my new, my new God. Um, and I'm, I'm going to leave Boston and go start a, a cult that, that worships, uh, 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 sky meteor things. I love it. I mean, I love it. It's uh, it's anarchy. Oh yeah, Ooh. yeah. There you go. I think we all know what I think it means. This anarchy. It's like no, fuck this, fuck that. Take off your clothes. Behave as though it's actually the wit- like. Just do the witchy poo yeah. thing full time. Yeah. Just like fuck in the streets. No, no, no. Just like anarchism has come 
for you in the form of a giant meteor. Yeah. Like, don't worship the meteor. Worship nothing. Or there, worship only other humans in the most utopian anarchist way. Yeah. That, yeah, that's good. That that's better. I mean, we, we both got to the rejection of the existing society, but but you you did it without creating this new like uh mythological framework. Uh although maybe I can be the high priest of the media religion, which is pretty oh, yeah. pretty cool. That's pretty awesome. I mean <laughs> yeah. it, you run the risk of having the King of England send you a letter that's like, bruh. Yeah. Calm down, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've you've made some mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> Mistake mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. In the early in, in general the invention of American religions some things have gone awry. Well, I can't think of any right now. But... <laughs> <laughs> um so your second question is uh so there's a lot of discussion we've had about, you know, original sin and kids and pearl and you know uh whatever whatever psychological disorder she's got or whether it's just being fucking cool as hell. Um, And so the question that I've really been wrestling with is whether children are innately good or innately evil. Um, And so I would like to hear your take on this, uh, whether you think they're innately good or innately evil, and you have to choose one. You can't (laughs) ride the fence. Um, And I'd love an example if you have, if you have one to sort of back up your, your claim here. I okay. I mean, obviously, I think that they're in, innately evil because I uh, have, I don't hang out with a lot of children, but the ones that I hang out with who I think are very cool are also just like, um, if they could shoot me in my sleep, I absolutely trust that they would. Yeah, I no, have like- every confidence that if every like, and what I really mean is like sub age five. Yeah. Because yeah. they yep. don't have a conscience, right? Yeah, no. But before before uh, I had a kid, uh, my, my my wife and I used to joke, and I'm putting joke in scare quotes because we were we were serious, deadly serious at the time. That like, yeah, like before the age of five, all children are sociopaths, and it's true. I yeah. I love I love my son to death, but like, yeah, <laughs> no, like I mean, it's like and uh, and, and like as, as an example, like uh, the, well, this, this reminded me that the children gaslighted you. Uh, so uh, so so Megan and, and her her partner were over at our place for for dinner um, a, a few months ago. And um, our kid really likes to blow out birthday candles. It wasn't his birthday, but we're indulgent parents. So we're like, yeah, let's we'll light a video. So, and he gets super <laughs> a trophy, excited. He blows, a trophy for effort. Yeah, yeah exactly. You get a birthday he, candles for everything. He blows out the candles. And then, you know, we all start very politely like, yay, good job. <laughs> and he just flips out like screaming like, ah. Like we're like really mad that I think we like he's kind of, he's a little bit applause averse uh, which I, I get like but but anyway so like since that moment he has watched that video like a hundred times and thinks it's hilarious and it's like oh yeah no see that was just when I had that like ridiculous temper tantrum that was just a joke that was like. <laughs> Okay, like to, no, that was not at all a joke. Like you were like screaming at us, um, and that's just, yeah. So no, I, I yeah, children are in, innately evil, and then around five, I'm I'm told they develop a sense of like the social and other people, and you know, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you have to tell them that the, like uh, when my partner now he teaches um, not that age, but he used to and found it awful and he was like you can't tell them don't you can tell them don't step on somebody's fingers because it hurts them but mostly you have to like tell them don't do that because 
you'll be punished because right, the idea that yeah. it hurts somebody else is like fuck that i don't care yeah yeah like, Who cares? yeah yeah um yeah we'll even right it's like the uh, yeah that there's there's a moment at which you realize that people can't uh you were talking about this the other day Megan, the moment at which you you realize people can't see your thoughts yeah uh, but that but that that happened and then there's a long period before you develop like a kind of sympathetic like capacity or, or i remember like, i uh my last apartment we had an upstairs neighbor so he was four when we first moved in and then he was 10 when we left so it was like a long span of time and i remember because he's he, he's a normal kid who's sweet, but he was you know a psychopath when we moved in. This moment when he did it completely by accident, he was probably about eight, and he sort of accidentally pushed the gate shut on his dad, and he goes, "Oh, I'm sorry, Dad." And I had this moment of like, I just watched an eight year old develop a conscience. Like I just <laughs> yeah, watched yeah. Yeah, exactly. a conscience be born because yeah. he would not have done that a year earlier. Yeah, exactly. God damn. And it was an accident. Like he didn't do any. He wasn't being sadistic. It was just like, oh. I just saw the thing that they say happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, eight. I guess is the uh, eight. I guess it would be the time that that does happen. I just like. I just vividly remember. Um, I had a professor in college who, uh, I guess, was talking about his son. Who he's like, here's how I know that like kids are are demons. Like I know it for <laughs> sure because I saw at, at a park a kid go up to a baby duckling and say duck. And then step on it. Oh my god! Yeah, okay. That's yeah. horrifying. That is yeah. horrifying. Yeah, and just like yeah, they're off by the fucked up, totally fucked up. Yeah, I mean, I I do wonder about their inner lives. Yeah, I mean, it's a, t- it's a frightening place. <laughs> and, and how how Hobbesian they potentially are. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it is. I know that. Bloody. Yeah, it makes me a bad Marxist, but like as a parent, <laughs> Hobbes is a little right, not fully right, but a, a little right. All right, that does sort of make you a bad Marxist. But we all, none of us, can be ideologically perfect. Yeah, yeah. Certainly not. Um, okay, the, f- the final question is: we all we all like Hester, right? Yes. We all think she's pretty cool. Yep. We all are like not so sure about her choice in men. I honestly like to think about Dimsdale as like as like a dog who um like farts and is super scared of it and then like can't calm back down again. And like that to me is like who Dimsdale is. Uh yeah. Yeah, that's not um, wrong. Even though like even if even if the dick is good, he he he's trash. Yeah. Um and so imagine that that Hester is your friend. Um, and and please counsel her in a supportive yet non-judgmental manner um, about why she should like ditch this guy. Yeesh. Um, besides, your kid hates him. Pretend I'm Hester. I'm Hester. Okay. Good. Good. Good evening, <laughs> milady. And I can't say Pearl. Your daughter hates this guy. Sh- sh- why can't you? Uh, is that sufficiently convincing? It should be, yeah. Why not? Uh, well, I, I mean, I don't. It depends on what mood I am because a part of me wants to be like, do you know what he's doing with those hoes at the church? Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, always a good tactic. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Just kind of so so some so some seeds of doubt there. Um, um also i just like to say i mean i i get yeah like okay so maybe he's super good at fucking and that makes up for the trick but there's no way he no one can do 
that like repressed no, and just no. like yeah like dog scared of its own fart and like actually good and, and no fuck. he's not but but just... okay take 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 that premise fine but like look okay so like you had that it was fun like r- like Anne Hibbins the witch in town is all like come be come to the forest with me and the dark lord right and, like just fucking do it just Quality go D right there if yeah. satan well, is yes. right behind a corner yeah, yes. Satan, yeah. like Satan, is going to be a hundred percent of a better boyfriend than fucking <laughs> Arthur Dimsdale. Hundred percent. Like, yeah, and even if it's not, just hang out with Anne Hibbins. Like, yes. it'll be, it'll be fun. Yeah. You'll like, you know, cook some toads or something, and you know, cal- cast some spells. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be lit. Also, AF. like, as much as your kid <laughs> hates Dimsdale, he's going to love that goat-bodied satanic boyfriend. She's going, yeah. she's going to love everything about that guy. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. Totally. Well, thank you. Is that, have we sufficiently answered your questions? You've answered all my questions except where do babies come from? Oh, from, <laughs> from a branch on a rose bush outside of a chapel. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I was expecting this book to cover it, didn't cover it. I was hoping. I just want to know just for my own personal reasons. Again, um, we showed up for the boobs. We were disappointed. <laughs> yep, we sure were. Ugh. Yeah, that's that's good. Thank you, Nathaniel Hawthorne, for your one disappointment. That's I will say, few disappointments in general. Agree. Okay, so this has been better read than dead. You can find Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find Katie at Katie Crywo. You can find me at Tussler Soros. You can find the show on Twitter at Better Red Pod, spelled R E A D. You can email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com, but only if you will share a picture imitating Hawthorne's face while he wrote The Custom House. (laughs) And on the next episode, we're talking about Pride and Prejudice. And then we have 1984 coming on the heels of that, which will be quite different, bringing us back to the 20th century. Our theme song is Love Bronstein by the Redskins, and our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. So yeah, thanks. 